Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. That's what we're going to be taking a look at here today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. I'll finish up, uh, and then we'll jump into the message here this morning. Um, so we are going to uh, do this uh, little study today looking at Mark, chapter 14. And then at the end of today, we're actually going to pause in the Gospel of Mark for several weeks uh, part of that is because next week we go into, next week and the week after, we go into what we call family services, which basically means we don't have enough people to help run our children's ministry, and we have all the families come in here. It's actually kind of a nice transition because we have a lot of uh, you know, youth and college people that help out with the children's ministry. A lot of people are gone. These are really slow seasons for us as a church. A lot of people are out, uh, going on vacation and whatnot. So we look at it also as a really great opportunity to bring all the kids into the service with us. So we call those family services, which means uh, basically I, I, I can't yell at you guys as long as I typically yell at you for. So uh, sermons are shorter, and uh, so we're going to be transitioning a little bit over the next couple of weeks. Anyhow, taking a look at the subject of Jesus, obviously, with regard to and in relation to Christmas and whatnot. But as an extended way, one of the things that we were kind of looking at, one of the things I've been kind of praying about as far as what God wanted to do in terms of going from these next two weeks on into the beginning part of the new year is really focusing on a larger theme, and we'll spend a few weeks taking a look at some more themes or topics over the next couple weeks, just sort of a little bit of an intermission in the book of Mark, and then we'll get back to the gospel of Mark um, several weeks prior to Easter. Because what we're going to be leaving off here today in the Gospel of Mark is a, is a period in the Gospel of Mark that's going to enter into a very dark season. And I was thinking you know, this actually be really good in terms of meditation leading up to Easter. Easter is a little bit earlier this year, so um, we can kind of catch back up in uh, the, the, the second part of February coming into Easter by really spending some time digging into the subject matter in the remainder of the Gospel of Mark. But up until then, we're going to be taking a look at sort of kind of a theme that we'll be calling signs of life. And the first sign of life that we'll be taking a look at next week is the incarnation, that God sent his son into this world, which is one of the first primary steps of life that God has brought into this world, that light has come into this world of darkness, and life has come into this world of death, and Jesus initiates that. So we'll take more look at that next week. So what we're going to wrap it up today looking at is the life of Jesus coming up to the time just prior to him going into the Garden of Gethsemane, and from that particular point forward, the rest of the Gospel of Mark takes on a very dark, um, somber uh, theme of Jesus' death, ultimately leading to the great triumph of his Resurrection. So that's basically in a nutshell what we'll be kind of covering and taking a look at. So I want to jump in this morning by taking a look at Mark chapter 14, verse 26. I'm going to read and we'll get to work taking a look at this chapter. Mark chapter 14, picking up at verse 26, it says this And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they fall away, they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all, and they all said the same in the verse 32, the first part. He says, and they went to the place called Gethsemane. Now God, right now we ask you that you would just help us to unpack this. And again, Lord, what we specifically ask you for this morning is that, God, that we would read your word and we would understand your word in a way that would just 
stir our hearts, stir the affections, stir the emotions of our heart to see Jesus as beautiful. God, we know that there's a way to read your, your word, read the Bible, that keeps a veil over our eyes. Where we grow in knowledge, we grow in topics and themes and understanding of larger themes that just come right out of the Bible, but we completely miss Jesus. We know that's what happened with the scribes and the Pharisees. And so, God, we, we don't want to read the Bible with a veil over our eyes. We want to read the Bible, God, in a way that clearly allows us to see the beauty of Jesus. And in seeing the beauty of Jesus, that we would enter into that beauty. And our hearts would be blown away, God, that we would respond to the beauty of Jesus in, in similar ways that we respond to things that are just beautiful. Where it stops us in our tracks. We just are captivated by it. God, we pray that that same type of element would take place in our hearts with Jesus. We pray and ask all these things in his name. Amen. Uh, this morning we're going to be taking a look at sort of, like I said, the last end of Jesus' life. But what Jesus does in talking with his disciples is they immediately leave what's typically called the Last Supper. So up until this point, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Now remember, up until this point, everybody that's been following Jesus assumes, presumes, that Jesus is the king. We'll get more on what that looks like in a second here. Um, but everybody also at the same time has their own agenda, their own idea as to what the king looks like or what the king's agenda is going to accomplish, all right? In the same way, uh, to some degree, like people have expectations of you. Uh, have you ever had relationships with people and sometimes the problems or sort of the schisms that start in your lives in between those people um, oftentimes arise out of uh, mis or, or unmet expectations? In other words, they expect something out of you and you're not giving them that particular thing, right? Does, does anybody know what I'm talking about? An amen? Anything? Like, all right, yeah, totally. Uh, that's that's it's kind of what's happening with Jesus and the disciples. Everybody has an expectation as to what Jesus' kingship will look like. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and um, probably to the majority of the people, Jesus is not moving fast enough with regard to the agenda of building the kingdom, whatever that looks like. And so what's happened is uh, Mark kind of takes us through sort of this dramatic narrative. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus goes in, hangs out with uh, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. It doesn't necessarily say their names, other gospel accounts do. Uh, Mary breaks open this costly ointment, uh, anoints Jesus. It's just sort of this beautiful element of worship and love that's going on right here. And then what ends up taking place next is uh, sort of kind of this, this downfall we see of, of Judas who goes out and sells Jesus out. And then we see Jesus taking his disciples, sitting down, having the Last Supper as we see it, and then Jesus is walking out. They're singing this song. Um, at the end of the day, we're told that all of this is placed within the context of uh, Passover. Passover can be best identified by one word, freedom. Right? Is freedom joyous or somber? Always joyous. Always joyous. Anytime people have the prospect of freedom, that's, that's, that's pretty happy days right there. All right, so these people are celebrating the Passover, but this passage, this chapter, is anything but celebratory. It's somber. In fact, there's a lot of interesting emotions that kind of arise in the text. I highlighted a bunch of them. It's kind of interesting in the passage. Um, verse 4 says this, the disciples, they were indignant. Um, verse 11, the only time we read of anybody being glad, it's when the chief priest, it says, when they heard that they had known where Jesus was, they were glad, and they promised to give him the money. 
you know, this whole betrayal thing. It's like the only, like, high note of celebration. They're, like, glad, but they're plotting the death of Jesus. Um, also, later on in verse 19, it says, they began to become sorrowful. So we see that this whole passage is sort of a very somber scenario that's taking place in the life of Jesus and also, consequently, within the life of the disciples as well. But Jesus quotes a passage in the middle of this uh, reading that we had just read this morning that's, that's very important because what Jesus basically does is he describes what's about to happen. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus de- describes what's about to happen. He's been actually doing this all along. But the disciples don't get it, and we don't expect them to even get it in this particular passage either because um, they were reading passages about Jesus kind of like I prayed, with a veil over their eyes. They had certain expectations of Jesus, for Jesus, and Jesus, anytime he said something that was to the contrary of that, they just sort of like blocked it out, uh, sort of edited it out. Kind of like what we do oftentimes when we uh, have things that we disagree with Jesus or things that we don't particularly like about Jesus, we conveniently edit out the things that we are in conflict with. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, ah, I don't like the whole thing or the stick with Jesus talking about suffering. So I want a Jesus that's all about like prosperity and life and wholeness and no sickness, no illness, no disease. So I'll take a Jesus that's all about everything's great and happy and so on and so forth. But we oftentimes edit out the things that we particularly don't like. And this is kind of what the disciples were doing as well. So there's three things that we'll take a look at here in the passage and we'll begin to kind of knock them out one by one. First of which is we'll take a look at The shepherd that will be struck, the struck shepherd. The second thing Jesus will talk about, the scattered sheep. And then the third thing we'll take a look at is the restored or reordered flock. So let's jump in and begin to take a look at the struck shepherd. In verse 27, again, he describes that there's a verse that is to be quoted. And one of the things I find interesting in this passage is that Jesus says, It is written... This is not, again, common or uncommon for Jesus to say something like this. He said this often. The gospel writers oftentimes tell us that what Jesus is doing or the miracles that Jesus had done or what is about to take place in the life of Jesus uh, as the writers were looking back over the life of Jesus, um, that all of these things were done in accordance with the Scripture. And what this means is that the life of Jesus is not just some sort of Um, life that's ripped out of the rhythm of the life of the people of Israel. But that instead the life of Jesus is actually literally part of this ongoing storyline of the people of Israel. In other words, there's a continuity between the life of Jesus and what has already been written up until this point. In other words, Jesus is literally fulfilling everything that God has promised in the past. We describe it as, you know, in today's world, if you're going to be Doing a movie, you're going to write a script. And the script is basically the whole plot line. Right? If you're going to make a movie, you kind of do like a storyboard of how the whole thing's going to play out. So you figure out what the scenes are going to look like. At some point, pre-existent, before all things were, God scripted everything out. And we even actually call the Bible the scripture. What Jesus is doing is, is living according to the script, the scripture, that God And the Godhead actually had all preordained that Jesus would fulfill. And so what Jesus is describing is that I'm basically fulfilling what the scripture was said. So he quotes from an Old Testament passage, and I want to read it. It's out of the uh, book of Zechariah. Next slide. We'll take a look at what Jesus says. It's from this Old Testament passage, and I'll read a couple other ones as well. It says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, declares the Lord of hosts. 
strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people had long awaited the hope of a king. Long awaited the hope of a king. And anytime you read in the New Testament, the word or the name Jesus Christ, the word Christ uh, is not the last name of Jesus, right? It's not like Brian Stupar, uh, like Christ happens to be his last name. The word Christ actually is a title. It's, it's a title of who Jesus is. And the word Christ literally means uh, anointed. It comes from the uh, Hebrew Mashiach. Um, and it, we can actually translate the very same word, probably a, a nice, easy English translation, just describe it as king. Christ, the king. This is who Jesus is. So Messiah, Christ, king, all synonymous terms that could be uh, interchanged, inter, uh, inter, interrelated. And so the point of the matter is, is what they see and what they were waiting for was that one day God would raise up a king. And I'll read you a couple other passages, but another thing too that you'll notice is that there was a relationship between the king and shepherd uh, sort of uh, motif that was going on throughout the Old Testament. So in other words, that God would raise up a king, but that the king would also be like a shepherd. A shepherd, again, that was from sort of a, a society of people that were familiar with sheep. And a shepherd was one that actually tended and took care of the sheep. It was one that actually had known the names of the sheep, had a relationship with the sheep. And when the sheep had seen the owner of the sheep, they would come running up to the shepherd. There was some type of a relationship that was there, a bond that was there, a trust relationship, a confidence that was there. The sheep had given their trust, their confidence to that shepherd. And basically, the Jewish people had this long-expected hope that one day God would raise up a king that would be like a shepherd, that would earn their trust, that would take care of them, that would break the yoke of bondage, that would set to right all that which is wrong, that would bring about some form of justice, that would rid the world and their government of evil and make everything right. And yet, unfortunately, oftentimes, what had happened was they had sort of a misunderstanding as to what that would look like. Because the Bible actually does describe that when this shepherd slash king does come, yes, he will do away with evil. So you've got to put this into the context of the first century. So here you are, Peter, James, John, the rest of the guys. In your day, the chief evil of your day would be embodied by Rome. They're the oppressive uh, government system that's over, over you. They're the occupying you know, government that's forcing you to do things that you don't want to do, forcing your hand to pay taxes, forcing you to uh, not allow you to do the things that you really want to do. So in your mind, in that day, evil would sort of take on this eerie shape of Rome. So in the minds of the Jewish people, first century, when you begin to talk to them about, hey, one day God's going to raise up a king and this king slash shepherd will come and he will rid the world of evil. What you're actually hearing, if you were Peter, James, John, or anybody else, is one of these days God's going to raise up a shepherd slash king that will destroy Rome, become like a ninja warrior, and he will totally throw off the yoke of all these evil oppressors, and we'll be free. This is what they heard. So they had this sort of agenda understanding that when this king would come, he'd be like a militia leader. And he would basically rally troops together, and he'd fight off the warriors. The problem is is that their understanding of evil did not go deep enough. Let me give an example of this. If all God did when he came and brought his shepherd slash king, and all God did was to simply rid the world of Rome, and Peter, James, and John became the next world leaders, 
would the world be any better off? No. Because if you know anything about Peter, James, and John, these guys were just as evil as you and I are. All right? Um, yeah, they were with Jesus. Yeah, they were pretty messed up. Some of you are like offended by that. They're like, what? Did you just say I'm evil? Yeah, look, the reality is, is, look, if you don't believe me, ask your spouse, ask your mom, ask your coworkers. The reality is this, is that we oftentimes see evil as being something that's out there. Typically, the way we work, oftentimes in this world, is we tend to have this mentality of like, oh, good righteousness is within this little zone. And anybody that's on my little soapbox preaching the little message of frustration and stuff like that, I'm all for, is, is all for me. They're on my team. They're in my family. They're part of my tribe. Anybody that is not part of my little soapbox, not in my circle, we do what? We demonize them. So what we do is we basically look at evil everywhere else, but here we identify evil in the hearts of everybody else except evil inside of us and the problem is that we don't go deep enough we don't go thorough enough in our understanding of what evil really is i mean look look, this world is filled with evil and we saw a perfect display of this this past week in connecticut a display of evil and the reality is oftentimes we as a country have this tendency to sort of ignore evil or to not want to describe it as evil until evil smacks us in the face. And we're forced to look at it at least for a short period of time and to somehow process it and ask questions like, where's God and things of this nature. But the point of the matter is that evil is not just simply out there, but it's in here. It's in my heart. It's in your heart. And so what Jesus was doing was he was basically coming, and his whole point was that this shepherd slash king would be struck. It's described as being struck with a sword. Take a look at a couple ways in which this shepherd idea is sort of carried through the scripture. Psalm 23, the Lord, God, God is my shepherd. Psalm 80, verse 1, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who are enthroned. Again, we have sort of these dual motifs, these dual idioms kind of coming together. Enthronement, which is, you know, relegated for a king, and shepherd. These two things, shepherd and king, coming together. The third one, Isaiah chapter 40, 11, The Lord will tend the flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. I love this verse. Some of you, you need to hear this verse today. Because some of you feel as if your lives are a little bit out of control. Things have happened inside of your lives that are totally beyond your realm of understanding or comprehension. Things that have just plagued you and destroyed you and crushed you. You need to hear this picture that God describes of himself as being like a shepherd, actually cradling in his arms these tender, vulnerable sheep. Some of you guys know I just got back from um, New Zealand last week. Um, I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, we had, I had actually gone to a conference, and uh, one of the conferences that I had spoken at there was, uh, it was this um, youth camp overlooking um, a really good surf spot called Raglan, which is, uh, if you're a surfer, it's, you know, it's probably one of the best, longest left, or, uh, left point breaks in the world. It was, it was amazing, and yes, I did get to surf twice, and yes, it was really good, and yes, we can talk about it later if you want, but the point of the matter is, is that right in front of my, my room was this pasture, huge pasture of, of lots of sheep. And every morning, I, you know, I'd wake up, and I'd look at the sheep, and they're just really fascinating to watch and, you know, hear them and, and you know, just look at them. They're, they're pretty amazing, and, 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 I, and I really liked them. I'm like, I, I really want to, like, 
co-mingle with the sheep, get to know some like sheep, make some sheep friends and join their posse and like hang out with them. So I actually, several times I'd actually go into the pasture and kind of like walk up to them. And, and the sheep never really came to me. They actually fled from me, to be quite honest with you. And all I really wanted is I just wanted to touch a sheep. Because, you know, their, their fur or wool, whatever you call it, I don't think it's fur, like, uh, wool, their wool just looks really cool. I want to touch it, like, and I've, I've touched them before, like, you can stick your hand in them, like, it might be that thick, and you can lose your hand in there, like, I want to do that. And uh, so I'm trying to go up to these sheep to, to find them and grab them, and they all kind of fled for me. And it was really interesting. One day, I, I noticed that this lady, I hadn't, I hadn't known who she was, but I, I think she was kind of part of the camp. Um, she walks in there, goes over the fence, and, you know, she just kind of shakes a little bag of food. And um, even before she kind of shook the bag of food, as she was walking up, I noticed something that from this huge pasture, all these sheep from all around, because they would just kind of graze all over the place, they just start, they kind of looked up and they saw her and they started running, even before she said anything. And the moment she walked into the pasture, there's this little fence she went over, they literally bolted, all ran up to her. It's kind of like this big puffy cloud of white that started kind of running up to her. And not only that, once they got up to her, they were like jumping up on her. A couple of them were like jumping up on her, wanting to have her pet her. And I was talking with her a little bit about this afterwards. She's like, yeah, we got about three of these sheep that are kind of really domesticated. They actually think they're like pets. They want to come into the house and be petted all the time. And a couple of them actually have collars. And so she's like, she's like yeah, they, they, they're like little dogs. They just follow me around. Everywhere I go, they follow me around. And I'm like, I, I want that. Like, that's, I want to be wanted by a sheep. Like, how do I, how do I get into their world and get, earn their trust? And she's like, you can't. You got to be their shepherd. I'm like, oh. You know, and, and so the point of the matter is, is that, like, she had this relationship, this thing with the sheep, and they loved her, and they trusted her. And so what God is saying is that one of these days he's going to provide a king, and this king is going to be like a shepherd. And the shepherd, one day, Jesus says, will actually be struck. He'll be struck. What's interesting is um, I love to study history. Uh, recently, I've, I've really gotten enthralled with studying revolutions. Fidel Castro, um, the Egyptian revolution, um, I, just anything revolutionary. I, I, like, gee, I, I'm, just, I'm just into it. I want to study as much of it as I can. What's interesting to me is that almost in every single occasion in which there's ever been a revolution, most revolutionaries start out with sort of the same hopes and dreams. To take over, to overthrow the former powers that be. But typically what happens is once the former powers that be are overthrown, the new powers that come into play sometimes are even far more aggressive, far more wicked than before. In other words, really what happens is no change but just a rearrangement of the power players. That's all that happens. So in one very real way, Jesus is a revolutionary. But the revolution that Jesus is saying, I'm coming to bring, is not one in which we have swords in which we will fight and we will crush our oppressors and our enemies. But what Jesus says is, we will have a sword, but the sword will strike the shepherd. The sword will strike the shepherd. He will be smitten. He will be struck down. What's interesting is that the Jews have always kind of asked this question, what would it look like when God comes, when God becomes king, when God does this? It's a legitimate question, all right? It's like if you're a Jew for a century, you've been living for you know, hundreds of years under oppression, sin, wickedness, outside oppressors coming in, taxing you, taking your women and your wife and your land and all those other things that you've lived your life to kind of a, a, accumulate and whatnot. 
Um, and you have these promises sort of tucked in your back pocket and sort of these hopes. You talk to your great-great-great-grandpa if he's still alive or the stories of great-grandpa. You know, it's just like grandpa talks about a king coming and you're like, yeah, when's this king going to come? The question that's going to be a common question is like, what will this king look like? What should we look for? If, 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 if God is going to be a shepherd, if God is going to provide a king, what will this king look like and what should we be on the outlook for? And so if you were to ask most Jews, like, how has God shown up in the past? If you look, turn to the Old Testament, you realize that there's a handful of different ways and when, when God shows up to his people, how God shows up. Take a look at the next passages. I, I, I don't know, maybe you guys don't have them up there. Maybe I just have to read them to you. Um, for example, the life of Jacob. Jacob, uh, he was a grandson of, of Abraham. When he has this encounter with God, he sees God as sort of this powerful wrestler, right? Jacob wrestled the angel of God. So this powerful wrestler that overcomes him. Moses has this encounter with God where he sees to some degree some element of who God is in a burning bush. It's a blazing fire uh, destroying, uh, really consuming this bush but not destroying the bush. Um, Israel, God's people, they have this encounter with God where what they see of God or what they know of God, what's been revealed to them of who God is, during the day they see this pillar of cloud, this billowing cloud of smoke by day. But at night, they see this like flaming fire just coming down. So the reality is these ideas or these pictures or the depictions of who God is oftentimes to the people of Israel throughout their history are oftentimes ones that bring about terror. The book of Job. Job is encountered by God by way of a hurricane. Joshua is approached by this mighty warrior in which he falls down before this mighty warrior. Isaiah has this terrifying vision in Isaiah chapter 6 in which the glory of God falls and comes around him and fills this entire temple and he sees these uh, extravagantly beautiful and ornate and actually at the same time terrifying angels called cherubim and their wings are, 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 are waving and there's this thunderous roar about them. Ezekiel the prophet has this vision of God. What he sees of God is sort of this blazing tire or wheel. Nobody really knows. Theologians for years have tried to suggest things that they, they would try to liken it to. Nobody really knows exactly what it is. But here's the most astounding thing. When God shows up in the person of Jesus, Jesus comes, God comes by way of a baby. Not terrifying at all. In fact, there's nothing more vulnerable than a child. There's nothing less terrifying than a baby. It, it, a baby is literally the epitome of vulnerability. It's the, it's the one thing in this world that, that can be crushed and has no defense about it whatsoever. And what we're going to begin to see now from this point forward in the Gospel of Mark is basically we're going to begin to see Jesus in sort of this depiction of weakness. The Garden of Gethsemane, we're going to begin to see Jesus sort of disintegrate, unravel, come apart. He'll begin to break down as he begins to fathom and understand what's about to be entered into. Jesus will begin to show radical signs of weakness. This is absolutely amazing. Have you ever had somebody in your life that you've looked at and you've looked up to them, they've sort of been this epitome of strength and power and might to you, 
And all of a sudden, at some point, they just sort of, they crumble. Maybe it was because of some form of spiritual uh, a breakdown or sin, or maybe they, they had some sort of a sin in their life and they fell spiritually, or they just had an emotional breakdown and they basically broke down crying and weeping or some sort of an emotional, mental breakdown. It's disconcerting. I'll give you a story. When I was young, probably like 11 years old, my, my, I've told you some of this before, like my parents have divorced. And my, it was my mom who had left. My dad up until that point, is, my dad's always been a great guy. In fact, my, my dad to this day is just this most unbelievably loving and generous and giving and tender-hearted and caring type of a guy. And, and the reality is, is that for the very first time in my life, that's all that I've known of my dad is his generosity, his love, and his kindness. And when I was 11 or so years old, I, I, I have this vision that's been ingrained in my mind. My mom yelling at my dad, my mom leaving, running out the door, my dad holding under her hand, literally dragging my dad out to the front door, my mom shutting the door on my dad's hand, and then my dad breaking down at the front door, crying. I didn't even know how to process that. This is my dad. This is the one who is is strength and might and power. This is the one that provides for a house, a roof over my head. This is the one that helps me with my homework. This is the one that yells at me when I don't do my chores. This is the one that is the epitome of might and strength. And now for the first time in my life, he's weak. He's unraveling. He's coming undone. This is what the disciples are about to see with their king who's supposed to be this mighty warrior, who's supposed to crush the evildoers. And instead, they begin to see a king that rather than striking his enemies, is actually struck. And it leads us to the second part. Because not only do we see a struck shepherd, the second thing we also see is the scattered sheep. And we see what takes place here is they're going to be scattered. The actual Greek word is kind of an interesting word, diaskarpizo, diaskarpizo. They're going to be scattered abroad, just everywhere, sort of tossed, thrown out. It's this idea of just coming undone, unraveling. Their lives are literally coming undone. Have you ever felt like that? It's undone. And here's, here's, here's how this happened, I think. I mean, we're told a little bit about the story of Judas. Judas had already gone to the chief priests and sold Jesus out. That really probably what was going on with Judas's heart is that rather than Judas following Jesus for Jesus, rather than loving Jesus for Jesus, Judas really had other agenda in his mind. He loved money. He loved the power. And Judas loved the money. I mean, Judas actually threw a price tag out for Jesus. He said, 30, 30 pieces of silver, we'll cover Jesus' death. So to Judas, Jesus was better off dead with 30 pieces of silver in his pocket than with Jesus being around. And ultimately, that, that, that action led to Judas's death. The second person that we see also in the story is Peter. And what we see here in the immediate story that we just read is that Peter basically pulls Jesus aside while they're walking and says, Jesus, I'll never, ever, and really in the Greek, it's, it's sort of this emphatic, emphasizing statement of I will never, ever, ever leave you these others will but not me and Jesus says you don't even know your own heart Peter you will leave me you will betray me 
And that's exactly what happened. Here's what oftentimes is the prelude to this. What typically takes place in our lives, and probably what took place in the lives of the disciples, including Judas, is that all of these guys had an agenda for Jesus. In other words, they looked at Jesus not for who Jesus was, but for what Jesus could provide them. In other words, Jesus wasn't the end. He wasn't the goal. I made this uh, example to you guys pointing a couple weeks ago. Um, for me, I, I love the beach. I, there's just something refreshing, rejuvenating, restorative about going to the beach. Just sitting at the ocean, and I can sit there for hours and really never get tired of it. I just did that this past week. I was like, I need to just clear my mind. I went down to the beach and found a nice little place that nobody was there. I just sat there, took pictures, just enjoyed it, breathed it in, enjoyed it. There's, I go to the ocean not to get something from the ocean, per se, as, as a... As a as a means to an end, I go to the ocean for the sake of the ocean. It's beautiful. I find rest restoration in my heart and my soul from the ocean. In the same way, the disciples saw Jesus not for ultimately who he was, but for what he can bring about. Jesus was the mighty warrior that would conquer uh, Caesar and overcome the wickedness and promise them, guarantee them a place of prominence in his kingdom. But the moment they saw that dream slipping from their grip, no matter how much Peter was misestimating, you know, underestimating his commitment to Jesus, Jesus says, no, at the end of the day, what will happen is you will betray me. And they all betrayed him. What oftentimes happens, even for us, is that trials has Trials have this way of basically refining our commitment. The book of Job is kind of an interesting book. In fact, there's a, there's, I think there's a key verse in there that kind of starts off and it describes Job having great prosperity, lots of family, great wealth, lots of cows and goats, and which back then was like equivalent to limousines and hummers and, you know, techie devices and stuff like that. And, and, and yet Satan comes to God and says, Hey, the only reason why Job is faithful to you is because he's got, you know, iPhone 5s and lots of LCD TVs and nice cars. And he's, he's living prosperously. But if you take those things away from him, if you strip them away, if you peel them away, one by one, he'll curse you to your face. God's like, game on. Game on. And the rest of the book of Job is about God literally stripping away, taking away, layer by layer, shaving by shaving, reducing Job the outer husk, to just simply the core of a man. And yet Job questioned. Yes, Job suffered. Yes, Job wept. Yes, Job was being literally pulled apart. But in the end of the day, God was Job's hope. He lost everything. But God was his hope. And what happens in our lives oftentimes is sheep are scattered. Our hearts run away oftentimes when troubles and trials and things come. is Because oftentimes what it really reveals is that maybe Jesus was actually a means to our real goals. Maybe it's like I come to Jesus or I go to church or I read my Bible or, 
you know, go to worship services or I'll give money away or help out the soup kitchen because maybe if I do that, then maybe God will get me a wife. You know, if I do that, maybe God, you know, will be blessing to me and he'll get me a husband and maybe I'll have a baby one day. Or maybe if I do that, God will take care of me and give me a house or help me pay my bills and all these things. In other words, really what we're saying is that we're using Jesus as a means to get what we really want. It's just a little bit of a religious spin on it. But if you lose those things, you lose the job, you lose the spouse, you lose the house, you lose everything, what do you have? For the disciples, because they had an agenda for Jesus that it was not being met, they felt like they had lost everything. And what Jesus was doing is he was making this promise that even through all of that, he would one day bring about a restoration of all of these things and that he would restore them. There's this um, line in The Hobbit, all right? Went to go see it yesterday, all right? So I got to quote some parts of the story, and I'll be very careful to not ruin it for you if you haven't seen it yet. But there's this line that's really great, and Gandalf goes to Bilbo, and he says this, true courage is not about knowing when to take a life, but when to spare one. And so he's kind of wrestling with, you know, he's not, you know, hobbits aren't warriors, right? Dwarfs are, but hobbits aren't. They're just kind of like peaceful, loving people that like to eat. And uh, so here he's basically being told, you got to take a sword, and you got you to be ready to kill. And he's like, I can't do this. And Gandalf's like, look, true courage is not about knowing when to kill someone, it's knowing when not to kill someone. And that, that particular part gets really important because it plays later on in this story, which, again, this is not going to ruin it for you, so don't, don't freak out. Uh, don't be like some of the people first service, like, la, 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 plug theirs. Okay, I, I, I don't think it'll ruin it, but there's this part, all right, um, in the story, Gollum, all right, there's a scene where he has the ring. Here's an interesting side note. Gollum is, is to me, an interesting paradox throughout the whole story, because here, here's, here's the deal. Gollum, the one thing he wants, he actually even describes, it's my precious. It's the one thing his heart longs for, yearns for, more than anything else in his entire world is the ring. But he's got the ring. He's not overflowing with joy. He's not happy. He's not, he's not satisfied. He's not overflowing with generosity. He's not overflowing with a sense of peace and shalom. His heart, his life is coming undone. And what happens is that, you know, basically he ends up, loses the ring. And in the storyline, what takes place is there's a scenario where uh, Bilbo is, is, is looking at Gollum and he has this opportunity to kill him and there's a scene that's really really powerful because he has this opportunity to actually kill Gollum but he chooses not to and the way that the movie depicts it, maybe the book describes it something like this, maybe even better I would imagine is all it does is it focuses on the eyes of Gollum and on the one hand the eyes are repulsive, they're sick looking they're, they're broken, they're full of just disease and decay and rottenness but on the other hand, what you see going on between Bilbo and looking at this decrepit creature is a sense of mercy. And he decides, rather than killing this beast, he shows mercy. The gospel basically says that Jesus, rather than using the sword to just simply withhold from crushing you himself, he falls on it. The sword that you and I deserve to take is the sword that Jesus takes. 
The first time in the Bible the word sword is actually used is in the garden. After God created mankind, Adam and Eve, he says, I give you everything. It's all yours. All creation is yours. All the birds of the field, in the air, all the creatures, all the fish, everything is yours. But in essence, what happened was Adam and Eve, for the most part, said, it's not enough. We want, we want more. And what takes place through the fall is that God basically banishes them from this garden, this Eden, this paradise. And he says, no more Eden for you. You're not allowed to enter into Eden. It's banished. And what God does is he places a sword at the entrance of Eden, at the entrance of this paradise, and says, this is, this is not allowed for you anymore. And the idea behind the swinging swords was to basically say the only way to enter back into the Garden of Eden once again is to pass under the sword. Judgment. And what Jesus is saying here is that the shepherd will be struck by the sword. The sheep will be scattered because of their false agendas, because of their waywardness, because of their sin. But he describes the fact that he will also one day restore the flock. So here's the question. How would he gather this wayward flock? This is sort of the the important question to really understand. How is God going to restore these scattered sheep, the ones that are running after power, the ones that have vengeance that's driving them, saying, I love vengeance. I have to pay back those that have done me ill or wrong. What about those that just love love? They need to be loved, and so they're pursuing every sexual encounter they can because that's what's driving them. What about those that demand money, want money? They want money. It's not enough for them. Even though whatever, whatever your precious is, whatever it is that you are longing for or longing after or grasping for, maybe some of you will get it. Maybe some of you will never get it. You'll just have the hope of getting it, and that keeps you going. But at the end of the day, whatever this is, how does this king take his flock that's running all over the world, all over the place, to bring them together into the place of safety, free from the hazards, free from destruction? By force, manipulation, sword, bribe. Almost every other revolution, at some point, once people get into power, have to keep that power by the sword. So, as I'm looking at the sheep kind of on this pasture... I'm like, all right, I'm determined. I'm, 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 I'm determined to touch a sheep. All right, so I, one of these days, I jump into the pasture, and, and there was one just kind of sitting up there. It was kind of in this sort of like little corner between the house and this other little fence. So I kind of walk around. I'm just like kind of quietly walking and uh, acting like I'm not going towards it, right? You know what I'm talking about? So once I kind of stop right there, I'm standing right there just looking at it, and then I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to go. And it actually has a collar on it, okay? This is one of the ones that have a collar. So it is one of the domesticated ones. So, um, but it's domesticated not towards me or other outsiders or other, like, faux shepherds, but only to one shepherd. So I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch this thing. So I finally, like, make a dart, and I, and I corner it. It's cornered. And not only that, I, it, it's, I grab it. I grab the collar. And I'm like, I'm going to touch you. 
So I'm like holding on to this thing, and I know it's not going to bite because it's, it's a sheep, right? Like I'm not worried about thing having fangs. So, so I'm holding on to the collar. I'm like touching it. I'm touching its head. I'm, then I'm trying to be all like gentle with it. I'm like, it's okay. I'm, you know, I'm, even though I'm holding on to this tight grip, I'm like being all gentle and tight. I'm like, good sheep, good sheep, you know? And then all of a sudden, I, I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to see what happens if I just take my hand off of it. And I take my hand And it ran as fast as it could away from me. Could I claim to be the shepherd of that sheep to bring it into my fold? Yes, if manipulation is a good tactic. Yes, if force, if fear, if brute force and trauma is, is, is a good tactic. But you know the reality is? That's the way a lot of us live our lives. We're under the influence of form manipulators, of gods that govern us by fear, and keep fueling us with guilt and shame. But not this shepherd. And the reason why that this shepherd can lay right claim to people that he loves and bring them into his sheep, sheepfold is because what we read in Isaiah chapter, the next verse, I'm going to read this to you. Isaiah chapter 50, this great passage that a lot of us are familiar with. I want to read it to you is the reason why Jesus can do this and how he does this is by way of love. So Isaiah 53, he describes it this way. He says, all we like sheep, this is the metaphor of sheep, we've all gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened out his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that was before its shears is silent, so, so he opened out his mouth. Last section, he says, it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. And what we see with this shepherd slash king who has come to establish a new order, to do away with the old order. Yes, Jesus has come to do away with evil. How far, how deep down, how extensive is evil? Well, don't ask human beings that question. Because we don't have the right answer. We always demonize everything that's beyond us, but somehow we think we're right. Have you notice this? Like if you or I lie, if someone else lies, we, we're quick to jump on them and be like, what a liar. They're wicked. They're evil. How can they do that? If you lie, if you get caught in lying, someone asks you, why did you lie? You're like, uh, it's really complex. Really? And it's not that you're a liar. It's just, it's just complex. So in other words, we soften it. We re-edit the story to not sound so bad. We're not good critics and good judges when it comes to what evil is. But Jesus is, and Jesus says the evil is so pervasive, so deep, so destructive, and it will destroy all unless they're rescued from it. And what Jesus does just like the hobbit, rather than crushing Gollum, Jesus looks at us in our sickness, in our brokenness, and says, they deserve a sword. Instead, I will take their sword on me. And I, their shepherd, will be crushed so that they, the sheep, that are vulnerable and weak and live a life full of crushing, full of oppression, can go free. To the degree that you see that this is what Jesus has done for you, it'll rewire your heart. To know that you are loved by God to such an extent that he would do this for you 
It earns your trust. Who wouldn't trust a God that would actually pay great sacrifice to love you? This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus comes to declare to us that we don't have to continue on going in our lives of sin and brokenness and oppression because Jesus came, he was crushed, he was oppressed, he came unraveled, undone. So you and I who are in the midst of coming undone, unraveling, being crushed, being broken, can actually be put back together again. We're going to finish by singing, partaking of communion. We have the communion elements in the back. I'm going to invite you to be able to partake in that, to be part of that. As you partake of the bread, I want you to remember the fact that what you're eating is broken bread. That bread was once whole. It was once one. In order for all of us to partake of that bread, to eat of it, it's got to be broken. And this is the picture. This is why I think Jesus uses this image to describe what salvation is. What he's done is that he was one, one God. He was crushed. He was broken so that you and I who live in a world of brokenness and crushing could actually be made whole. So I want to invite you to partake of communion. I'll invite you to sing. We'll have the ushers come forward. We'll have the opportunity to give that gift. Like I said, feel no obligation. If you don't want to, that's fine. If you want to give later online, that's fine. If you want to put it in the donation box, that's fine. No obligation. It's a way for us to give. I want to invite you to worship and love and serve and honor this king who's done so much to demonstrate his kindness, his love to you. To worship him. So I'm going to pray. We'll sing. We have some rugs in the front. It's an opportunity if you guys want to just kind of get away from your seat and just sit before Jesus. Get on your knees before Jesus and worship him to invite you to that. So let me pray and let's worship. Let's sing. Jesus, right now we just give you thanks for your great love and we ask you, Father, just to bring healing to our hearts. We thank you, Jesus, that you were the shepherd that was crushed, that was, that took the sword for us. That even though we deserve it, that you went under the sword of the judgment of God so that now, through Jesus, we can enter back into Eden, paradise. Not any Eden or paradise on this earth, but the true Eden, the true paradise, the one that lasts forever from you, God. So we want to just offer you our worship and our praise and our honor.